As I mentioned, Matthew 26 today. We're going to be in verses 6 through 13, continuing in a series. This is, uh, we're several weeks now into a series that we've called Learning the Presence of God. Learning the Presence of God. We believe that Jesus uh, came 2,000 years ago, not simply or only to reconcile us to God for eternity when we die, which is a common misconception, but actually that that eternal life breaks into the here and now. That God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, but he is also particularly present to those who would turn to him and walk with him. If we're honest, you're probably like me, many of you, where I wasn't taught what it looks like to actually open myself up to and learn how to walk with God in a real personal, meaningful way. And so throughout this series, we're simply breaking down what has historically been called liturgy. Liturgy sounds like a very churchy word, right? But really, in essence, in its original language and context, it means a bridge. We're building a bridge through embodied habits. There are things that we do with our body and that we do with our mouth that compose liturgy. Because guess what? God has given you and me a body for the purposes of the bigger picture of our spirituality and our relating to him. Okay? So as we do things with our body, we actually learn to embrace God's presence supernaturally because the kingdom of heaven is here. Today, we are in our fourth movement in this liturgy that we want to shape us as a church. All right? A few weeks ago, our first part was to face God. We said it's very easy to try and get close to God without making eye contact with him, right? It's very easy to feel like we're near to him. You might be sitting here, but a little nervous to open yourself up to him. We have to face him, open our eyes and look at him and allow him to look into our eyes and our soul. We face God. Then we actually stir our hearts to embrace him, to actually desire him. Then third, uh, we listen to him. God is a speaking God, and so we listen to him, submitting to him in his word with the intent to obey him, right? And Brian did an amazing job teaching us last week on listening to God. This week, what's the fourth movement? We've listened to God now, facing him, embracing him. Now, we get the invitation to love God. Love God. This, is, this might feel so simple to you who have been around the church for a while, but we, the simplest things are often the most important. And so it might feel that way, but I hope that we can see it with some fresh lenses and eyes, and hopefully we will all have something to learn. And in fact, sometimes the most obvious things are the things that we overlook and actually that are the most detrimental to us, right? So um, would you stand with me as we read God's word out of reverence for God? Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are right here, available with us through our resurrected Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us, to give us insight, not only into your word, to understand and comprehend what you desire to communicate to us through your word, but also give us insight into ourselves. We need you to teach us the ways that we have been formed and shaped by the patterns of the world and where we need to be renewed um, through you and your word. So please meet us now, and would you make us a people who enjoy and hunger to love you more and more, Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. We're going to do a little experiment here. Anybody know what this is? A tuning fork. Yeah, I found out before the gathering today when a friend brought this that there are two types of tuning forks. I intended, uh, the only one that I knew of was, were the, the musical tuning forks, right? Where you, you hit them and they go, just kind of ring out a, a static tone. Uh, this is a medical tuning fork. This can test your hearing. I had no idea that these things existed. So what you do with a tuning fork you hit it, right? And right now, what you can't hear, but maybe if you're in the front row, you can see, is that there's this vibration going on between. And what you do with a medical tuning fork is you put it on your head like this and pretend to be a unicorn. <laughs> That's not what you do. You can hear it in your ears, the vibration of it. It's a, it's a test for your, your uh, hearing capacity and hearing loss. Now, in order for you to be able to hear it, I'm going to try something a little off the cuff. I don't know if this will actually work. All right, you can hear that, right? I'm not lying. Now, what's going to happen, though, if I hit this and I put my hand on one side? Someone thought it'll stop. Good hypothesis. Stops instantly. I'm only touching one of the forks. What is it about touching one of the forks that makes the other one stop, too? You got Someone smart just spoke really under their breath to actually tell us what it does. Tell me, tell us what it does. You're dampening the mode of vibration. We're not going to dive into that because that's not the real purpose of all of this. But now you know why it happens. What is happening in the middle of tuning forks is the mutual vibrations are going back and forth, right? And they feed off of each other, and it prolongs the effect. And you can hear it if it's, a, if it's a musical tuning fork. You can feel it through the vibrations in your skull all the way into your ears if it's a medical tuning fork. What happens when you hold one of them is that both of them eventually stop really quickly. You deaden the vibration of both by deadening the vibration on one. I grew up, I, not grew up, I didn't grow up in the church. I met Jesus in college. And the church that I grew up in, or in my faith, loved Jesus. 
made much of Jesus. Um, in fact, its statement, its mission motto was, it's all about Jesus. But one of the peculiar things that I picked up there that was verbally spoken that I think reflects broad, um, a broad lopsidedness in the church in the West is that we try and make it so much about Jesus and his love and his grace that we either overlook or even worse, downplay the importance of us loving Jesus. Now, our love for Jesus does not, and we'll, hear, we'll see this, affect his love for us. He freely pours it out on us. But experientially, we're choosing not to participate in that reverberation of his love that is intended to make us more like him as more loving persons toward God and toward the world. And so like a tuning fork, if we refuse or overlook the importance of us learning to love God, our experience of his love for us is deadened as well. So as we're learning God's presence, a core, non-overlookable piece of this is the crucial nature of us learning to love God. As we dive in to this text, what I think we're going to see here in Matthew 26 is that we are made in God's image. And that as we are remade in relationship with God, one of the things he intends to do, and in fact a mark of a maturing Christian, is that we would become more loving people. Let me just simply state that again. This is so simple that we all probably know it inferentially or have been taught it. Maturing Christian faith, knowing our God who is love, if we are growing in him, must, must yield and make us more loving people. That's the only possibility because his love is so strong if we are not hardening ourselves to it and growing near to him, we too will, will begin to reverberate with the love of heaven. So, if we want to learn God's presence, we actually have to humble ourselves quite a bit because we must learn to love. The world is dead set against you and I becoming loving people. All right? It may speak it, but it does not want it. Let's look here at our text. In verse 6, we find our setting. We've now turned a corner in Matthew. In, in verses 26 and onward, we begin the pursuit or the approach to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And in the first few verses of chapter 26, we read about the plot that the religious leaders made to kill Jesus. And so Matthew wants us to know that's the dark uh, setting that we find ourselves in, and then light breaks in in this little story. In verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. I'm just going to stop there. Um, this is, it's so easy to just read and blow past simple statements about setting of what Jesus was doing. Jesus was in the house of a man named Simon the leper. We're familiar with leprosy probably 
Um, leprosy is skin disease. In the original language, it was a broad category, skin diseases. But the way that we know leprosy is it actually like deadens you so much that limbs can start falling off and you lose feeling and sensation. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, leprosy was actually something among the people of Israel that quarantined you from the people of God. You were unclean. So when you would go out into uh, the village or whatever, you would have to speak out, unclean, unclean, because they knew that leprosy was contagious. And you could not actually approach the temple or the tabernacle as a leper because you were impure before God in the way that your body was breaking down with the, uh, the effects of the fall. Here's the, the surprising piece, though. It also made your home unclean. So much so that if you were healed of your leprosy, a priest would have to literally go in and inspect your house and the walls. And there would be spots sometimes in houses where there were skin diseases, and I have no idea how all of that works, but apparently it was true. And so a priest would have to go in and declare it clean too for you to be able to host people. You can go back and you can read this in Leviticus. So for Jesus Christ to be sitting in the house of one Simon the leper, I just can't help but believe he, he healed the guy. But still, his house even would have been an unclean space. Jesus loves unlovely people. Society has to quarantine people, even if it's not their own fault. You're a leper. It might have happened naturally without you knowing it. And, and tragically, you're isolated. Jesus pursues those that we push away. The loveliness of Jesus is on full display in a single sentence that we might just pass by. Jesus loves unlovely people. He's sitting in the house of Simon the leper. He loves people that we find unlovable. Before we talk about the, our need to love God, which is the overall main point of today, we need to see that all of that starts with Jesus' love for humanity. We don't step first into a loving relationship with God. Jesus is the love of God wrapped in human flesh. And you see, you and me, we've been trained and formed to give our love out on loan. We're measured. We're calculated. We do things for people that even on the surface might look altruistic, but this inner calculus can be going on. And it might be a minor thing. We could still image God and, and reflect some sort of selfless love toward people. But for the most part, we give it on loan, expecting something in return. And you could see that when someone doesn't love another person in return to their love. We withhold. We withdraw. I was going down to a um, really tragic, uh, well, to support a, a pastor friend whose church had gone through tragedy this last week. Um, a little girl had, had passed away, and they were coming together. It was sudden. It was not expected. They were coming together for a prayer meeting to lament. And I, as a pastor, was aware of this kind of calculus going on about whether I would go or not. And then I looked at Google Maps, and what was previously a 27-minute drive was an hour and 40-minute drive. 
And I'm thinking, oh, is this worth it? That's, that's what we're used to. We're swimming in it, right? Here's what's different about God. When the scriptures say God is love, don't mistake it to say God is loving. The Christian God of the Bible, the creator God who made all of this in the first place, is himself love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one community, pours themselves out to one another in love in such a way that the beauty of it radiates out into the universe and created all of this. God is a fountain of love. What happens when you take some water out of a fountain? It, it just refills spontaneously, right, out of its own essence. While we give our love out on loan, God's love creates. When Jesus goes into the house of Simon the leper, I just have to assume that he healed him, doesn't say that. Um, his love pours out and makes people clean. And he's not lost anything in his essence of love. The reason that that challenges us is because it frees us to do something really, really, really important, okay? As we're talking about becoming more loving people, if we get the foundation wrong, we get the gospel wrong. Jesus loves unlovely people like Simon the leper to show us that Jesus will love anyone because you and me probably do not assume that our state is as bad or perilous or, or scandalous or unworthy as a man like a, a leper. But Jesus comes to us with both love and truth. He comes to a pastor that's doing inner calculus about whether to go and support a friend in his own kind of self-centeredness. And he says, I love you, and if you just see me, you know you're unworthy. Jesus loves unlovely people so that you and me could be honest about how little we're actually driven to love others. The fact that our love comes out on loan proves our unloveliness. And so we got to get this right. Jesus initiates in love. And I don't know what your story is necessarily. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you're at right now. Um, the hardest moment in facing God, embracing God, listening to God, and loving God oftentimes is us being honest about ourselves. But the only thing that God ever gives in his pursuit of humanity is to say, I am rich in mercy. That's straight up Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy. The only place in the Bible that, that calls God rich in something He's abounding, he's other things in other places, but rich is mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. If you're not a Christian and you're here today or you're questioning things, you've you got to see that the fundamental invitation to follow Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to build relationship and dependence on Jesus is an invitation to be loved. 
And it's supernatural. It feels weird because we can't see him here. But his Holy Spirit is here to actually manifest the very presence of Jesus. He promised his disciples that the Spirit would do that. And so to become a Christian is simply to say, all right, Jesus, you say that you, you love me. I see it here in Matthew 26. You love the unlovable and the unlovely. And, and I'm, I'm going to take a step out on a limb and just say, would you prove that to me? Would you help me to see that? And then the Holy Spirit lifts your eyes to see the cross where he actually paid for the unloveliness of humanity in order to give us his loveliness, to pour his spirit out into you and me that we have hope to become lovely people because of Jesus and by the Spirit. Why is this important? Well, before we get to the next verse, we got to set this foundation because the human impulse is to think, if I love God, then he'll love me more. And so I grew up in a church that said, no, we can't emphasize people loving God because we might mess that up. But that's, that's more our own fears than it is scriptural, biblical, okay? So we got to be a church. we got to be a people who see Jesus is, is more lovely than we can possibly imagine in the way that he draws near and pours out mercy to us in love. And a part of receiving that and growing in that, if you're a Christian today, is to be honest about your own unloveliness. That's what confession is. It's us opening up our mouths to acknowledge the, the us that Jesus already knew and laid his life down for. Jesus loves unlovely people, and it's scary to acknowledge that. But we can't reverse the order, all right? Okay, now we can go to the second verse. I promise it won't take that long for each of them here. Look, at, look with me at verse 7. People knew Jesus in this way, and so verse 7 happens. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Jesus not only loves unlovely people, but he teaches unlovely people and unloving people to love. So other gospel accounts tell us that this flask was probably worth 300 denarii. That is uh, 300 days worth of wages for an unskilled laborer. So let's say $40,000, $50,000 a year for an unskilled laborer, although that cost is going way up right now. That's how valuable this alabaster flask was, this precious jar. Most likely the most valuable thing that this woman owned. All right? She comes in, which in and of itself is, is breaking social stigmas, and she's entering into the house of a leper. She's willing to potentially even be unclean in order to pursue Jesus and to break her most precious possession, this ointment. Now, I had always just thought ointment meant lotion, all right? Um, we went on a vacation a couple of weeks ago, and the Airbnb that we were staying in had this, this little vial of stuff, and on the label it said Aesop. I'd seen this store before, and it was way too fancy for me to walk into. Um, but this little thing of ointment, worth like 40 or $50. I pump a little bit on my hand and go like this. I don't really like lotion all that much. As it's drying, I cannot describe to you how soft my hands felt 
That's what ointment does. It actually changes the feel. It's not just a moisturizer like lotion. Man, you use that all the time. Parched skin or whatever. Ointment was like this thing with significant change on me. This ointment was precious in their day. A whole year's worth of wages to buy it. She breaks it. It most likely was not small because the disciples respond in anger and thought it was a waste. Imagine this woman just like dousing Jesus in this precious ointment, showing off his value and his worth. She's loving Jesus. I don't have anything more profound to say about that. She's giving him her, her most precious possession, most likely. And, but think about what that is going to cost her. She might have thought, oh, well, economic downturn, at least I got the alabaster flask of ointment I could sell for buy me a year. When something's costly and sacrificial, like you lose savings, you lose security, it has impact. And a part of that calculus of love when we give it out on loan is saying, will I get it back? It might be, if I go and drive this person to the airport, how long is it going to take me to get home? It might be, if I don't study for this final with all of my time, what might happen to me if I go and attend a Bible study or church? This is a constant thing that we're aware of, right? The invitation here today is to see what happens when someone makes a sacrifice in love for Jesus. And what we got to see is, even though the disciples respond negatively, we can't. she does this, and it still doesn't touch Jesus' loveliness. She gives it most likely knowing this pales in comparison to what he's worth. There's nothing in your life that is more precious than the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, the eternal Son of God. In fact, Jesus says, yours and my soul is worth more than the world. When he says in the parable, Tonight your soul is required of you. What can you even give to the man who tried to get everything in the world? What can you give for your soul? How much more the Son of God? So we got to kind of set the stage here for loving God to say, you cannot love God more than he is worth. You can't out-love the one who is in himself a fountain of it. And so I wonder what we find most precious in life. Um, whether it's material stuff or our resume or relationships. And I wonder if our hands are more like this to say, this is mine, or our hands are like this, still receiving it, but knowing this is a gift from God, and if he chooses to take it or there is need of it in love, I would give it. For parents... This happens with our kids all the time. We, we think that if we mess up in loving our kids, then our whole life will crumble, or we couldn't possibly live with ourselves in the way that maybe our parents did stuff to us in our upbringing. Or we're single, and we just need the, the spouse who can satisfy us. And we're actually relinquishing and trusting and saying, as I give myself to you, God, I trust that you will provide for my needs. Okay? 
This woman gave something incredibly precious. We are terrified of sacrificial love. But what does, what does that do? It stops our experience of God's love. Because here's the thing. What does Jesus say the woman did? What's his interpretation of her action? We haven't actually read it yet. That's not fair. Um, we read it at the beginning, but we haven't read it yet. Read, all, read along with me. When the disciples saw it, verse 8, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Most likely, this woman does not even know that Jesus is about to be crucified. Jesus was pretty hush-hush. He made his inner 12 aware and maybe a few other people, but the fact that this woman is unnamed probably means she's someone on the periphery of, the, of his disciples. What she probably doesn't know, and that's commonly what commentators assume, Jesus interprets as his anointing for burial. I alluded to at the beginning, this chapter starts off with some darkness, the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. In breaks this story of him being anointed. Throughout Israel's history, people that were anointed were kings. So so Samuel comes to David when he's a little shepherd boy and anoints him. He had anointed Saul beforehand. Um, priests were anointed. People with significant roles in the plan of God. And Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. He defends her to the disciples who were angry. And he says, she's anointed me for burial. My hunch is, she was just doing it in love. And simply doing it in love was her participating in the eternal plan of God. The invitation for you and me to learn God's presence by loving God is, is really profound. This is a little uh, weird to even try and grasp. But you might be feeling like, what can my expression of love, my feeble attempts to love God, how could he ever even accept them? Like, I'm aware of all of the inner calculus I'm doing, and I try and love Jesus, and I'm thinking like, oh, maybe he'll answer this prayer I've been praying for a while. Like, how can that possibly be accepted by him, right? Jesus here shows us, when we give ourselves in love, what is actually happening by the Spirit of God is the Father loving the Son through us by the Spirit. God the Father won't let His Son lay His life down without Him being anointed. And she's participating in God and His work. This happens a lot. In Acts 4, the, the, the apostles say that God even used the evil of the religious leaders to crucify and accomplish his plan without evil marking God. So when we choose to say, God, I'm going to step out on a limb. I'm going to go against my fear. I feel apathetic even. I'm unmoved, but I know I still ought to do this. 
we're participating in the life of God expressing his love in the world. This is cosmic. It's not just common stuff of everyday life. So when you choose to, to sing on a Sunday and to not be quiet, even though you might feel a little unmoved, but you sing, your voice is going into the throne room of heaven and the Son of God, his heart is warmed by you. In the incarnation, one of the things that blows my mind is that God invites us so close to him that he feels and enjoys us loving him. Not that we manipulate him, but he's so condescended to our level that he invites us into his life in such a way that by the Holy Spirit, by the sacrifice of Jesus, perfecting our little sacrifices, he's pleased. Never let yourself think, God probably doesn't even know that I'm making this sacrifice in love for him because the next thought is going to be, so why do I do it anyway? And then the next thing is, I'm not doing it. But this invitation is into the cosmic throne room of the universe, a reality behind our seen reality. Jesus made all of this inner working of God accessible to us, that even the most mundane stuff becomes fueled and loaded with joy and purpose. So your mom changing a diaper, and God saying, that's my child. Or your dad changing a diaper, and saying, that's my child. You see, this love is so important, not just because it's a command, but it's an invitation to dive into this fountain of God's love and be filled with joy and peace. Because chances are, we're, we're, we're thinking about what's most precious to us. We're thinking, what would it look like to open myself up, to use that, to love God? And then we're thinking about the threats that might break into our life because of that. How does Jesus respond to her mega-sacrifice? First, he silences the critics. They say, this is a waste. And their motivation, their reasons, like, that's a pretty sound argument. Wait, couldn't she have taken like a little bit maybe and sprinkled it on? And then sell the rest? You see, we, we measure love by effectiveness. And Jesus sees her sacrifice. He's like, that's what I'm talking about. And she gets criticized, not by religious leaders, by Jesus' key followers. Now, we've we got to be like, kind of slow to blame him because in Matthew 25, he just talked about feeding and clothing the poor. They might have like, got the application for it and been like, all right, we've got to love the poor. And they see that and they think, oh my gosh. But you want to know why? Because even in his commands to socially go out and do justice and show mercy and love the poor and serve and liberate the oppressed, we can never think that that is in and of itself sufficient love for intimacy, love and intimacy with God. That's got to flow from it, be fueled by it, and in the end, that'll allow us to do it for the long haul. It won't just be a quick thing, but you cannot misplace that. 
Because as we see his love for us in our unloveliness, we give him our most precious possessions. We love him. And then guess what? We actually start to experience his love in a more profound way when he stands up for us. When he silences critics or he silences the enemy saying, you're being a fool, God's not going to see this. Imagine she probably felt so loved before she had done it. She pours out the ointment. Then she hears Jesus stand up for her. Imagine how loved she felt in that. And then he tells them about the plan that she's participating in, saying, you don't always have me, meaning bodily, by the Spirit, we still have Jesus. She's anointing me for burial. And guess what? Wherever this gospel goes forward, look at verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How often is that the other thing that we're worried? No one's going to see this. It doesn't matter. No one's going to consider me and the sacrifices I've made when they go about their lives. And Jesus says, guess what? This is so significant. It's going to go everywhere. Whether or not your sacrifices come to the light in this life, most of the time they will. God just loves to show off his love going forward in people. They'll be talked about for eternity in the new creation. Sometimes I think about it like, you know how when people uh, pay to get a little stone in like the building of Polly Pavilion or whatever it might be, and they're like, this donor did it. Like, we, we see in Revelation that the streets are paved in gold, and sometimes I think about, like, acts of love and sacrifice that will forever be commemorated, written and etched into the new creation so that they would never be forgotten. So even though you might not feel compelled to love, right, how often do we think that for love to be authentic just has to be the overflow of these romantic feelings that just can't even be contained? Ask my wife how loved she would feel if I only loved her when I felt like it. There have been a lot of days where it hasn't happened like that. Same thing in community, same thing in the church. This is the community where we're learning to love because we've been so formed to be self-centered and fearful and apathetic. How often should we feel love? We see someone die in the streets unjustly and we're like, wow, I know I should feel worse, but I've can just keep scrolling. Like our souls are deadened by a consumeristic culture that says if I take in, I will be, I'll be okay, I'll be satisfied. When you and I were made to be loving, pouring ourselves out. So the church, what does this mean for us? What does it mean to love God? What is this liturgy thing? How do we embody this? We learn to love God which then makes us loving people out in the world and people see it, people experience it. One of my favorite things about hosting game nights every week is how people know other people that come to the church and my friends come in that aren't a part of the church and they're like, wow, your friends are great. They're like really loving and compassionate and John Stuckey's awesome and <laughs> Connor's great and we like Meredith too. Wow. I've, hope, I've literally had someone say, I have hope for the younger generation because of your friends. Aww. 
you see how Jesus' love pouring out into the world and the Spirit just helping us see what's already there. And then we step out on little limbs. We're like, I'm so afraid. Like, maybe for you, it's just starting to like give to God's mission here in the church. Maybe it's you setting aside 10 minutes in the morning every day just to sit with God in love. But the great commandment, Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not him heaping burden on us. It's him freeing us to see what life is really about. The most free, joyous, peaceful people are the ones that are so shockingly the most consumed with loving other people. And we're terrified of that. But the invitation today is to take up small habits, practices. I don't know, maybe even the Spirit's telling you, like, give that most precious ointment, whatever that is for you, in love. Maybe it's 10 minutes in the morning. Maybe it's 20 if you've already been doing 10. Maybe it's giving to the church. Money and sex and power are some of the biggest idols that choke out our faith. And as we learn to, to love God in small ways, don't think it's meaningless or purposeless. You're pushing back the darkness that you have been formed in by the world and allowing the light of Jesus' love to radiate through you to his people in the church out into the world that they would see and know. And Jesus protects his bride as she expresses love. He defends her cause. How many of us think this woman went without eating for a few days because she gave something really substantial financially. I don't think a single one of us would raise our hand and say, oh yeah, Jesus probably let her hang out to dry. Jesus provides for his people, and here's what happens. As we give over the things that we find precious in this life, we surrender and we practice habits that seem small and insignificant, our experience of God's love for us and the very presence of God increases. Philippians 8, Paul express, or Philippians 3, starting in verse 8, Paul expresses this. I want us to look at it. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. That word loss means refuse or dung. Everything in my life is, is like the worst thing, the least desirable thing in the world because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Next slide. And count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Not saying, in order that I may be saved when I die, but describing this spiritual reality of heaven bursting in to yours and my heart, as we give over the things in this life that we just don't need and we want more of Jesus, we gain more of him experientially. So if you feel like, I can't pray, guess what? If you start committing to the habit of prayer from the motivation of saying, I want to love Jesus more, you'll experience more of Jesus and love Jesus more. I count my time as rubbish. 
I'm going to pray in order that I may gain Christ. Next slide. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ has to be rooted in faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Jesus laid down his life in love, but was risen in love, that you and I could be empowered by love. At the final day, when we're all remade new, we are going to be perfectly loving people, wishing that we saw what was available to us the whole time. If we would just learn to love God and let him work through us in his cosmic plan to love our neighbors. And guess what? They will notice. They will see. And we're praying they too will start following Jesus. So can we hunger to learn this, to humble ourselves, that we would learn to love God? Can we be a church that commits ourselves to that? I see a few people shaking their heads. Yes? Yes? Do we want that? All right. So when we sing, we're singing because we're realizing my using my vocal cords stirs my heart to love God more. When Paul says, I desire in every place that the men may pray, lifting a holy hands, he's not just saying just because. When we lift our hands, we're pushing our hearts to love God more because we can never outlove how lovely he really is, right? When we gather together and prioritize him instead of watching our favorite football team at 10 a.m., which sucks when it's on the East Coast, we're leading our hearts to love him and value him more. We need to learn it. But if we would just take that little step, he will do all the rest by his spirit. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are so available to us, more than we could ever have, have even begun to hope. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to see one or two simple ways that we hold something as precious, that we need to just open our hands up, maybe even pour out for your sake or through your people, for your people. And would you help us to, to learn to love you, that we would actually begin to become more loving people, not for our sake, not even for our city's sake, for your sake, Jesus, that is the fountain of love in the universe, you would be glorified by your love going forward through us. We trust you. Help us. We are, we are so apathetic. Um, help us to see it. Help us not to accept it. Push back our fears. Give us faith. Let us stir one another up to love and good works. In Jesus' name, everyone said.